Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. The petals on water hemlock are notched at the tip and, and elderberry is not. And, you know, to make a mistake and eat water hemlock would, would kill you. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest, citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. If you've ever been tempted to swipe a mango from your neighbor's tree or pick those greens you saw in the park and turn them into a smoothie, then this episode is for you. We're learning the ins and outs of foraging with naturalist Roger L. Hammer. Foraging food sounds so exciting. Searching for provisions, maybe discovering some sweet berries or nutty salad greens you've never tried before. Eating wild plants can be fun, but if you're not careful, it can kill you. So when we wanted to learn the basics of foraging in Florida, we called Roger L. Hammer. He's an award-winning naturalist, botanist, nature photographer, and survivalist instructor for the Discovery Channel reality series, Naked and Afraid. He's also the author of several books, including Falcon Guides, Foraging Florida. Before you go gorging on handfuls of leaves from your backyard, you'd be smart to heed Roger's advice. He recently chatted with me about guidelines for foraging legally, ethically, and most importantly, safely here in Florida. I grew up in the 1950s and 60s and all before I went in the Army. But back in those days, my brother and my mom would just say, go out and play and don't come back till supper time. So we spent a lot of time out in the woods. I was a curious kid with a frog in his pocket. But it wasn't until I got down here. And the first thing that hit me was when in 1972, a book came out called The Native Orchids of Florida with 100 and two native orchids in it. And I thought, how in the world can there be 102 orchids in Florida? And I just went on this mission to go find them. And in the process, I discovered two new species were not known to occur in Florida. And out of the 110 or so species that are in Florida now, I photographed 98 of them. Unbelievable. That was my first love of plants and then wildflowers. I was walking past all these other cool, really cool wildflowers and then I started leading wildflower walks, and then I got started getting calls from professors at Florida International University, botany professors, for me to take their students out and identify plants for them in the Everglades. And so I would take them out, and I would give them the botanical name and the common name and what the botanical name means in English and what family it's in and whether it attracts butterflies as larval host plants and all that. And finally, after doing that for several years, one of the professors asked me, said, where did you graduate? And I said, Cocoa High School. And he said, no, I mean college. And I said, well, I used to dream about going to college when I fell asleep in high school. And then the following year, they gave me an honorary doctor of science degree. So my son, Benji, is seven. And over the summer, I got a call from his summer camp saying Benji and another boy aren't feeling well because the boy dared Benji to eat this plant that grows 
just decoratively on the grounds of the camp and now they're not feeling well. And the camp counselor had the app so she could figure out what plant it was. And it was an arrowhead plant. I looked it up. It's toxic. So seven year old boys just randomly eating plants, probably not the best way to learn. When you were starting, how did you even have an idea of what was safe to eat? A good friend of mine was Dr. Julia Morton, who, and she also got a honorary doctor of science degree from University of Miami. And she wrote a book called Wild Plants for Survival. And being a naturalist with Miami-Dade Parks, I was charged with coming up with new programs to bring in funds, you know, to help pay for park operations and all. And I knew that edible wild plants were a a big deal to a lot of people. So I, I started learning what was edible. Then I started teaching a class on edible wild plants at Fairchild Tropical Garden. And I learned real quick that anything you fry, they're going to like. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I'll say. So in your experience, is there any correlation between the way a plant looks and whether it is safe to eat since you have studied sort of both sides of this? No, not at all. In fact, I'm a survivalist instructor on Naked and Afraid. And I was working on an episode up in Lake County, Florida, just south of Gainesville area. And they were camping by a uh, spring run. And growing along that spring run were elderberries. And elderberry flowers, are they're edible. And the fruits are edible. You can make a tea out of the flowers. You can just eat them. And elderberry flowers are little small white flowers that are in a what, what a botanist would call an umbel, a kind of a saucer-shaped cluster. Growing intermixed with elderberry was spotted water hemlock that also has uh, little tiny white flowers. To the novice, those two would look pretty much identical. The petals on water hemlock are notched at the tip, and, and elderberry is not. And to make a mistake and eat water hemlock would kill you. Oh, my gosh. So that's my job with the naked and afraid is to make sure they don't kill themselves. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't even realize you were oh. uh, part of that show. So what do we do? Because I, I see your book and I see your website and I'm feeling inspired on one hand. But then on the other hand, I think about my son who was not feeling well after just grabbing something. And now you're saying two things can look similar, but one can kill you and one's fine. So where do we even begin? It's a long learning experience. There are groups that go out and forage and you could join those. There's books like mine and others out there. There's a guy on the internet called Eat the Weeds. And he describes a lot of stuff, but you have to watch it. Did you ever read the book Into the Wild? No, but I've heard it. I probably skipped that day of yeah. <laughs> high there, school. <laughs> I was asleep. Yeah. yeah, there was a guy. Yeah, there's this guy. His dad was an attorney, and his dad wanted his son to be an attorney. So he went to law school and became an attorney. And he said, There you go, dad. I hope you're happy. And he had $24,000 in the bank, and he ends up giving it to homeless people. And then he goes off by himself into Alaska to live off the land. And he harvested what he thought was a little pea that you can eat the, you can eat the seeds of it. And he harvested the seeds of it. And it was the wrong species. He had the genus right. You know, he had the group of plants right, but it, he ate the wrong species and it killed him. Oh. Yeah, it's just, and you, know, you talked about your son. When I was at Castle Hammock, I was home and there was a scout troop camping there 
And all of a sudden I got a phone call at 10 o'clock at night and said, Roger, there's fire rescue trucks and ambulances at Castle Hannock and they need to get into the gate. So I drove over there and opened the gate and went in and the scouts were cooking, doing the marshmallows over the campfire. The Boy Scout leaders that brought branches to stick the marshmallows on and roast them over the campfire. And they had brought oleander. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. And so just the smoke coming up off of those oleander branches and the kids breathing it in, they got deathly ill. (gasps) And you. If, if if you eat a leaf of oleander, it'll kill you. And boy, I used to pull my car off the road and walk into elementary school offices and tell them, why do you have oleander planted in your school grounds as a landscape plant when one single leaf chewed and swallowed will kill a child? I need you to and, drive you know, around my neighborhood. Oblivious. and do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because who knows yeah. what's growing there. Uh, We've got know, a fire pit in the backyard, and that's scary, actually. Do you have any stories like that? Has that ever happened to you where you either ate something that you weren't supposed to eat or you went for berries and there was a mama bear there who didn't want you messing with her cubs breakfast or anything like that? Snakes. There's so many things that could go wrong. One thing in my book that I that I tried to encourage people to do is to grow these, find out what's edible, native or whatever, and edible and, and grow it in your yard. So you're harvesting from your yard, and that does two things. A, you'll be able to harvest from your yard, and a lot of these plants are wildlife food, so you're attracting wildlife birds and whatnot to your yard by doing that. And to be ethical, you shouldn't take a big grocery sack out in the woods and start harvesting away because there's wildlife that depend on on that food for them and their young. Leave, leave some for them. <laughs> Uh, that's a good that's a good point. So what would be a couple of easy plants to start with, maybe, that we could eventually have in our own yard? It would depend on where you live. I live down at Homestead now, and down here it's entirely different from the rest of Florida because we're influenced by a lot of plants from the Bahamas and the greater Antilles that are here on South Florida's native plants. And as you get further north, you start running into temperate zone plants. But some really good things to eat, persimmon, Wild persimmons, they're really good as long as they're super, as long as they're ripe and they've fallen off the tree. Otherwise, they're very astringent. Sea grape is another good one. You can eat out of hand or you can make jellies or jams out of those fruits. And I was very familiar with those because I grew up on the beach in Cocoa Beach and sea grapes are all over the place. Elderberries would be another good one. You might have to water it often if you don't have a wetland in your yard. It likes wet peat, so to speak. Wood sorrel, you probably have it in your yard. It has three little leaves that are notched at the tip, almost heart-shaped, and they either have yellow or pink flowers. It's a common lawn weed. A lot mm-hmm. of people eat that plant. It's in the genus Oxalis, and oxalates, calcium oxalates, are can really do your kidneys in, and they can cause kidney stones. So wood sorrel is one to, to maybe nibble on, but don't sit there and eat it very regularly. Yes. Same with alligator wheat. Field purslane is high in, actually field purslane is a little bit high in oxalates, but it's also the richest source of omega-3 fatty acids of any leather leafy vegetable. And if you have chickens and you feed purslane leaves to your chickens, it lowers the cholesterol in the eggs you're eating. Wow. So there's cool stuff. And another, another thing I should point out is some of these plants that I, I included them in, in my book as warnings, but there's, there are plants that are abortive fashions. 
that women in early stages of pregnancy should not eat them because they could cause a miscarriage. Oh, my gosh. This is terrifying. Okay, so why do this? Honestly, why? You could go to the grocery store. You could go to the farmer's market. Why risk it when there are so many landmines? I guess a lot of it is because now it's illegal to forage in Everglades National Park, but that's not true in Yosemite or Yellowstone or some of those big national parks out west. And I think the reason for that is Yellowstone and Yosemite have trails that you could hike on for weeks. You could be out there for weeks. So to say that you're not allowed to forage, I guess they know people are going to do it anyway, so they might as well allow it. And and the Appalachian Trail, you can forage along the entire Appalachian Trail. And so a lot of it is is survival for, for people. And I guess part of it, too, is just going back to your roots, you know, of our ancestors, and you know, there are some things out there that are super good to eat. I like this plant called hog plum. It's a tree. They're super good to eat. Yeah, I don't know. It's just people going on naked and afraid. I look at these people and go, why? <laughs> <laughs> so do I. <laughs> why you? you have to, you have to survive for 21 days stark naked with a guy or a girl he's never met before. But I think a lot of those people just want to. A, prove they can do it, or B, they're already in that arena in their life. They're survivalists or maybe survivalist instructors, and they just want to put it on their resume. Sure. And I do think, to your point, there's something about proving to ourselves that we can do it. For instance, I buy my clothes at the store, but I still like to knit and embroider, and it's just nice to do something with your hands and get back to, as you said, the way indigenous people lived all the time. Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. got a lot of questions on social media from people who were interested in trying this or maybe have already tried it. So I'm going to jump into some questions. You touched on the legality. Janet Keeler wants to know, can we forage in the city legally? It depends on the park. Like I say, Everglades National Park, you're not allowed to forage at all. Big Cypress National Preserve, which is adjacent to it, you can forage in the Big Cypress if you get a permit prior to going out there who's going to do that right um the ocala national forest same deal you can forage in in ocala national forest and even apalachicola national forest if you get a prior permit all of the wildlife management areas same deal you have to get a permit first but some of the county parks and local preserves like that they probably don't even have any rules just go do what you want the thing i guess i don't know But it would be good just to check first. But again, I've been in the Fakahatchee Swamp with the state biologist, and we would stand there and eat hog plums together, and it's illegal to do. And uh, So people do do it. 
Okay. And, and I'm not advocating uh, breaking any laws. I'm just saying personally, I don't think it would be as much fun if you got a permit. Okay. My coworker, Matthew Petty, host of WUSF's Florida Matters, asked a similar question. Are there rules about, say, picking a mango if the tree is on private property, but the fruit is hanging over onto the public sidewalk and, and fruit on county lands. We actually have some trees like that in my neighborhood. I'll be walking the dog and there's a lime tree. There's a mango tree. And I'm like, are these fair game? I know they belong to someone, but technically the fruit is like well, hanging onto the street. Yeah, legally not. But I have a big mango that hangs over our neighbor's property. And I just tell them to go ahead and pick whatever is over there and have a nice day. I don't, <laughs> but. That that brings up another point. Mangoes, avocados, citrus, and many other non-native fruit trees are escaped out into natural areas. So you could be out hiking out in the woods someplace in a preserve, and there's a mango tree or there's an avocado tree or there's especially orange trees or grapefruits. And I included those in my book because you're going to find them. And lucky you if you're out. If you're naked and afraid and you find a mango and fruit, you, you don't know, have to worry about that. Like that. Yeah, but since these are in non-native and so-called invasive species, they're growing in undisturbed natural areas to pocket the seeds and take them out with you so that you don't add to the problem. Ah. But if it was on somebody's private property, I would just knock on their door and say, hey, could I have a mango? Mm-hmm. But But yeah, legally, you probably can't. Got it. All right. Lori Delk Walker has a question about identifying mushrooms. She says, I'd love to forage mushrooms, but have zero confidence in my ability to avoid poisonous varieties. Any advice for her? What I did in my book, I completely ignored mushrooms. I referred them to a book called Florida Mushrooms and let them go see all pictures of all of the mushrooms that are in the state of Florida and how to identify them. And there are groups of people that know those plants and know mushrooms really good, and that those would be good people to contact and maybe go out in the field with. It's always good to go with somebody that knows what they're doing and then learn from them. And that's a lot of how I learned wildflowers because I was going out with some pretty hardcore, heavy-duty botanists. Donovan and Helen Carell were my friends. They wrote The uh, Floor of the Bahama Archipelago, and John Papineau was a good friend of mine who went out in the field with me, and he was the director of Fairchild Tropical Garden, hanging out with people and just learn through osmosis and just learn from being with them. And I was on one of the Naked and Afraid programs. It was being filmed on a 9,000-acre cattle ranch, but in the woods, a big, huge cypress forest and all where they were filming it. But outside of the area where we're, where the naked couple were camping were where the cows had been. And there was cow patties out there and there was psilocybin mushrooms growing all over them. The magic mushrooms. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I asked the film director, I said, you don't want me to point those out to, to them. And I told her what they were and she goes, no. <laughs> 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 They'll be sitting around the campfire singing Kumbaya for 21 days. <laughs> That's a different show. <laughs> Okay, just a couple more questions. (laughs) Alicia Cruz asks, when are the best times of year to forage for different things? And how can we be aware of when we're disturbing the natural growth cycle of things? Like, how can we take a little but still leave Mother Nature mostly undisturbed? 
if you're just picking fruits, it's not really disturbing anything. But like I say, just pick what you want to eat yourself and then leave the rest for the wildlife or the next forager. But the, the key to it is there's a website called Florida Plant Atlas, and you can go there and look up a plant, let's say the persimmon, and you can click on herbarium specimens and see, you know, where people have collected it. And you can find out when, when their fruiting season is or flowering season. So everything has a season. And it's just a matter of learning what time of year. Most plants, as a ballpark just statement, most plants are going to start flowering in the spring. And they'll be fruiting in the late spring or early summer. But some plants will wait and flower in the summer and then fruit in the fall. But it's really a, something you're going to have to figure out to just do some research and find out if you're looking for seed grapes. Just, I'm sure you could either find photos of them, what people have taken, and find out what month they took those photos and where, and just go from there. But, yeah, there are definite seasons. Now, if you're going to harvest something like any royal or something like that where you're going to actually pick the branch and then the leaves to go to make any royal tea out of or something like that, then you just take what you need to make some tea and leave the rest. Yeah. There's penny royal tea, but then the goldenrod makes a really nice tea. And back during the Boston Tea Party, so they started looking for a substitute for tea and they discovered goldenrod and they goldenrod tea became so popular that they even started exporting it so there are a number of plants out there you can make tea from and i also included some sort of fun plants there's a grass called toothache grass you can chew on if you're out out camping or something you get a toothache and you happen to see some toothache grass you can chew on and it'll numb your gums and help alleviate your toothache and then I put in a, a vine called chew stick that you can chew on the stem of it and it frows up and, and frays and you can use that to clean your teeth like a toothbrush. Oh, so that's some, handy. Some fun things like yeah. And you mentioned, yeah, the so, tea. oh, I just wanted to know if there were any other plants off the top of your head that maybe we can't ingest, but have topical uses like say for a bee sting or something like that. Not really for bee stings. I did include medicinal plants, and there were some that were used as salves and stuff. I can't think of right off the top of my head which ones those were. There are a number of other books out there. That book by Julia Morton, Wild Plants for Survival, was one that I mentioned. There's also a lot of a lot of other sources for information on medicinal plants, especially like a lot of plants are like what you call bush medicine over here or folk medicine. And a lot of them, they, they work very well, but they've just never been approved by medical doctors. Well, fascinating. I could talk to you all day, but as we sort of land this plane, Lisa Peaks, our colleague at WUSF Public Media, wants to know what to wear, not just to look cute while you're out prancing around in the grass, <laughs> but protective gear, you know, the shoes. Do we need gloves? Do you bring an apron with pockets? How do you even transport all of this stuff? I don't go out and forage just to, to bring stuff back or anything like that. On some of these long-distance canoe trips, if I just happened to pawn something that was 
that I saw that was, had edible fruits on it or whatever, you know, I would go harvest them and chew up and eat them on the way. But I spent a lot of time hiking around and especially, you know, that picture I sent you of me standing in the swamp. That was in the Fakahatchee Swamp. And I spent practically half my life walling around there looking for native orchids and, and stuff. And, and But I don't, there's a lot of my friends that wear snake-proof boots and all that. You know, I just wear sneakers, high-top sneakers and blue jeans and uh, I don't use mosquito repellent, but most, most of my friends do, or they wear net, head nets. So it depends on your tolerance and how, how much you want to suffer. But <laughs> just wear, wear comfortable clothes, watch overheating, especially in these days with the heat waves we've had. Mm-hmm. Wear clothes and water. Bring, make sure you bring more water than you think you're going to need would be my best advice. But, yeah, you could wear those uh, hardware aprons just with the two big pockets in the front that the carpenters use. Uh, you could you bring those if you're out going to actually harvest stuff to bring back. But like I say, it's mostly just walking around and harvesting stuff that you want to eat right there. Okay. Last question. I would be remiss if I didn't point out something from your Facebook bio. It says, I'm an author, wildflower photographer, canoeist, kayak fisher person, and rum aficionado. So we got to talk about your favorite way to enjoy rum. My favorite rum went out of production. It was called Pirate, P-Y-R-A-T. There, there are some pirate rums still out there, but the really the good one they made was Pirate Cask 1623. It was made in Anguilla. It was by far my favorite sipping rum, and, and I, I just like to drop an ice cube in a glass and pour some rum in there and swirl it around and sip it. But Pirate was selling for about $285 a bottle. So there are some really good rums that are in the 30 to $90 range that are fairly good, but just I just like an ice cube with with pour some rum in there and swirl it around to cool it down a little bit and sip it. But, oh, I was um, hoping you would say I, t- I take elderberry flowers or something and put <laughs> them in the glass. There's a funny story. I went to go buy. There, I, I had heard that there was four bottles of Pirate Cast 1623 rum up in a total wine store in um, North in um, Palm Beach Gardens, which is a bit of a drive for me. But when I heard they had four bottles, I thought I'm going to go buy all all of them because it was going out of production. So I drove all the way up there, and when I bought all four bottles, the the cashier looked at the register and she looks at me and she screams as <laughs> she could. She goes, "Sir, that's a thousand and fifty nine dollars and eighty four cents." And I oh. looked back at her and I said, "That's because of the sale." <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. And if you're, if you're foraging uh, enough of your food, maybe your grocery bill goes down and then you can afford to splurge on some rum. Oh my gosh. Roger, I could talk to you all day. This has been fascinating, a little bit terrifying. Do you have any other parting words before we head out to forage? Well, like I say, just watch what you eat. Know that what you're eating is safe. One, one plant I wanted to talk about too, real quick was a plant, little plant called bird pepper for people who like really hot foods. There's a pepper that grows wild in Florida. And it's called bird pepper because birds eat the fruits, but they swallow them whole. And so they don't really understand that they're hot. But there are 90,000 Scoville units on the heat scale. And jalapenos are seven to 9,000. Wow. Of course, there's some that go up in millions. But bird peppers, if people who like hot peppers, that would be a good one to 
to grow, not only to attract birds, but to have a source of peppers out there. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, I guess parting words is just to make sure that if you're absolutely 100% positive, don't be like, like Chris McCandless on Into the Wild that ate the wrong member of the same genus and killed himself. That's the big message. I did put poisonous plants. It makes sense that you're going to learn if you want to be a, a forager to learn what's what's poisonous. First learn what can kill you and then just do your homework before you go forage. Okay, it sounds like we all just need to get your book, Foraging Florida. Roger, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing all your decades of expertise. Oh, my pleasure. Roger L. Hammer is a survivalist instructor for the Discovery Channel reality series Naked and Afraid. He's also the author of several books, including Falcon Guides, Foraging Florida. You'll find a link to the book, which includes recipes, if you dare, on our website, thezestpodcast.com. If you prefer to get your food from a place with, you know, walls, then be sure to tune in next week. I'm catching up with Andrew Tambuzo. He's the owner of Boozy Pig Butchery and Kitchen in Tampa. Andrew first appeared on The Zest in 2019, and he's back to tell us about his latest purchase, a herd of swine. I'm Delia Cologne. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. Our social media and web guru is Alexandria Ebron. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2023, part of the NPR Network.